Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walk on over to Walters as the XFL has returned to D.C. at nearby Audi Field. Next home game is Sunday, March 5th. This Nats season, make sure to add Walters to your pre- and post-game routine just across the street from the ballpark. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. C.J. Abrams stands in. Lanky shortstop from the left side of the plate. Here's the wind by Wainwright. First pitch of the spring. Swung on and fouled back behind the plate and out of play for strike one. We're underway at 108 here in Jupiter. It's 85 degrees. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, February 27th, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in West Palm Beach, Florida, site of National Spring Training. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Great to have you with us. Exhibition games have begun. Mackenzie Gore was the Nats starter for their Grapefruit League opener on Saturday afternoon. The pitch clocks have arrived. Mark Lerner was at Nats camp within the last week. We have plenty to get to. I went to Maryland. Mark went to Northwestern. I will not be mentioning the fact that Maryland knocked off number 21 Northwestern. Some might say dismantled number 21 Northwestern, <laughs> 75-59 in College Park on Sunday afternoon. You see, mentioning that would be a not-so-nice, low-class thing to do. So I will not be mentioning that game. Instead, I will say hello to my friend of many years, the great Mark Zuckerman. Hello, Mark. How are you? Well, hello, Al. I appreciate you not mentioning the outcome of that game. I won't mention the fact that Maryland students at that game are chanting overrated at Northwestern. What kind of bizarre world are we living in, in which Maryland fans find the need to chant? I, I, I'm almost stunned they didn't storm the court after such an impressive win over a ranked opponent like that. I give them credit for holding back and not you know, making too big a deal out of what was obviously a gigantic win for the Terps. Well, after we tape this installment of the podcast, I'm headed down to College Park. We're going to engage in some couch burning, which is a a (laughs) time-honored College Park, Maryland tradition after big Maryland basketball wins. So this qualifies as a big win. Hey, you guys were ranked. Our team was not. Remember that. When Northwestern wins a big game, we go to the library. That's the difference between the schools. I got you. Well, listen, that's camp is going on. It's great to have actual games now to sink our teeth into. I know that there hasn't been like a lot of hardcore news at Nats camp within the last you know week or so, but we definitely, I think, have some interesting items to get into here. But you know, with the game starting in terms of Grapefruit League action and Cactus League action, really interesting. And I know the sample size is small, but pitch clocks have been all the rage over these last few days. And you know, I don't think anyone wants to overreact to what we are seeing, 
But boy, this feels like this could end up having the exact desired effect that baseball wants in terms of games moving in a much quicker fashion. The Nationals over the weekend played three Grapefruit League games. The times of those games, two hours, 26 minutes, two hours, seven minutes, two hours, 28 minutes. I know that some spring training games are short to begin with, but man, you were there. What did you think? It seems like these pitch clocks already are having an impact. Al, the pitch clock is real and it is spectacular. <laughs> this is a, this is legitimately a huge deal. And yeah, it's spring training. You want to reserve judgment a little bit. I want to see in a real game what the effect is. It's going to be a little bit different, but you can't argue with the results here so far. And it's not just the Nationals. It's across the sport. I think maybe there hasn't been a game more than like 307 or something across the majors at this point as we as we tape this. It's really noticeable. And I might even say, I withhold judgment on this, but at the moment, I might even say it's a little bit too much. These are moving really fast. And what I'll be interested to see, I felt like, especially watching the game here on Sunday, pitchers had the ball and were ready to go with like 10 seconds left on the clock. They were really moving quick. They could take more time if they wanted. And I wonder if they'll start to adapt to that if they're almost overcompensating at the moment because nobody wants to get called for that and they're still learning how it all goes. So there's actually some room for them to slow down. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. In my mind, I kind of like what I think a perfect nine inning baseball game is, I think it's probably around 245 would be, you know, typical. And then maybe a little bit longer game, tops three hours and a really quick game is about two and a half hours. If you're talking about the average time of game at 2.30 or less, I almost feel like that's a little too quick. Now, we'll see. Again, there's a lot that can change once you start adding TV commercials, more pitching changes, big situations late in games where you want to you know, think about it a little bit more. That might change it. But it has been really noticeable, really quick. But I will say, for the most part, everyone has been in support of it. I haven't heard a lot of complaints necessarily, just an acknowledgement that they need to adapt to it. But I think they like the end result. I think it's really encouraging. I mean, we've talked about this. I do think the length of games has been the bigger problem than the pace of games. And I, and I may be in the minority on that, but I just think in 2023, asking people routinely to spend three plus hours 162 times a year, it's just not going to be happening. There's no reason that Major League Baseball games should take routinely three plus hours. And you know, when we say three plus hours, it's not like three hours and three minutes. There are so many games that are like three hours and 30 minutes, three hours and 45 minutes. And that's just absurd in this time. And it doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, I was thinking about the whole pitch clock thing. Like, yes, on the one hand, we're only talking about, you know, a few days of exhibition games like we need to see more. On the other hand, you know, time is time, right? So like eight seconds now is the same as eight seconds a month from now. 30 seconds now is the same as 30 seconds a month from now. So if games are shorter from the get-go, that's probably what is going to end up being the case. Like if something like the pitch clocks is going to work, it should work from the get-go. Like that makes logical sense, right? With the concept of time, unless, you know, our whole mode of time is about to change, which I don't think is going to be happening here. So I think it's really good. And I think it's so interesting too, that players seem to be handling it just fine. I know there have been a few infractions here and there, but you're not seeing or reading about like big blowups or anything like that. People are adjusting. And if this works, which I kind of think now it's going to work, I think we're going to all be saying, why didn't we do this sooner? Like, why did it take until now to implement something like this? I think this could be really good for baseball. So I'm excited to see more. 
Yeah, I, I do think all that will be true. There's a reason they wanted to start this from the get-go in spring training, to work out the kinks, to understand that there are going to be some wacky moments. We haven't seen them in the Nats game, but you saw that in the Braves-Red Sox game where the game ended on an automatic strike three with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth because the batter wasn't looking up at the pitcher with eight seconds left, even though the catcher was standing and not in the squad. He's out. Damn, cold strike three! Wow! If that happened in a regular season game, we are talking about that nonstop and we're saying what a travesty. You cannot let a game end like that when it's you know late February in Florida, different story. So the hope would be that by doing this right from the get-go, everybody starts to adjust and by the time we get to April, they're pretty much adapted to it. And you know, again, it's very early, but what's so interesting is they said last year at AAA, the first year they did it there, that it took about four weeks for the infractions to go down. It started at something like 1.7 per game, and then it tapered down to, I think, maybe about a half of an infraction per game, and it stayed there for the rest of the year. And it shaved 25 minutes off the clock. Day one of spring training, it was almost identical, like 1.75 infractions and 23 minutes shaved off the time of game, something along those lines. So, in theory, when we're doing one of these episodes here, almost coming up to opening day, we may be talking about, okay, you know what? There's only maybe one infraction a game, if that, and the time of game is holding steady there. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see that. The things I'm still curious about though are, and again, spring training, so there are no big moments. But when you have a regular season game and it's the eighth, the ninth inning, and there's a tying runner on base and a big hitter come up to the plate and the crowd's really getting into it. There's something to be said for a little bit of extra time there to soak in the moment and let the pitcher think it through or the batter, you know, stepping out of the box and thinking about what's coming next. Like, I don't think fans necessarily hated those kinds of things. It's in the blowout games or early in the games. So I'll be interested to see if it feels too rushed in big moments and if that impacts the outcome at all because they are trying to get this in too fast and maybe you're not throwing the best pitch you want or the hitter isn't fully ready. I, that's still to be seen, but that's kind of the thing I want to note once we get into April and May. I think the other thing to think about too is it's possible that this leads to more offense because one of the reasons that pitchers take so much time or have been taking so much time between pitches is a conserve energy because guys are throwing so hard now that you want to rest up as much as you can, you know, within reason between pitches. And B, you're processing information. You're processing information from the dugout. The catcher is thinking about the right way to attack the hitter. So you're really putting thought into each pitch. If you're moving at a quicker pace, you're not going to be able to put in as much thought with each pitch and you're not conserving as much energy between each pitch. So you think about it like, you know, when you're at the gym, right? And let's say you're doing bench presses. There's a difference between waiting three minutes between each set and one minute between each set. Like you're not going to be stronger the next set if you haven't waited as long. So I wonder about that. You know, all these guys who are used to conserving energy and throwing, you know, 95 plus on every pitch, let's say, all of a sudden, maybe that average four seam fastball velocity ticks down a bit. And maybe that makes things easier for batters. And maybe that does help to spice up offense this coming season. I think that's a possibility. We'll see. I'll trust you on the bench press analogy because that's your department, not mine. So I'll, I'll trust that you know what you're talking about there. But I get what you're saying. And this is another one I'm curious to see is, you know, pitchers are only going one, two innings right now, the starters. Once we get to a point that they're going five, six, seven, does that come into play where the stamina issue maybe comes in? 
what I've actually seen here, and it's only three games so far, of course, but what I've actually seen is I think it's helping the pitchers, at least the Nationals pitchers, because you know what's happening? They are working fast and they don't have time to think about what am I going to do? They look for the sign, they throw the next pitch. They've only issued five walks in their first 26 innings. And again, small sample, three spring training games, but it's been very noticeable at how many strikes they're throwing how few pitches they're throwing and how little number of walks there have been. And I would not be surprised if that ties in a little bit with the pitch clock. It's the old Ray Miller mantra, work fast, throw strikes, change speeds. That was his philosophy in the 80s and 90s when he was a great pitching coach for the Orioles and the Pirates. And I think there's a little something to that. If you don't have too much time to overthink it, you control the pace of play as the pitcher, work fast, throw strikes. I think they go hand in hand. Well, one day, you, me, Roger Bernardina, and Stoney Garrett are going to all go weightlifting, and it's going to be the greatest session of a workout in the history of workout sessions. I can promise you that. Stoney Garrett, by the way, I saw that picture that the Nationals tweeted of him within the last few weeks. I think he is challenging Roger Bernardina for the greatest physique in Nationals history. Stoney Garrett has muscles in places most people don't even have places. The guy looks like a million bucks. All respect to that guy. Davey already said he wants him to be his bodyguard. He doesn't know if he can hit or not, but if he can't, he wants him to take over as his bodyguard. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. You know I love my analytics. Well, here are some stats for you. 43% of your utility bill is heating cost. You can save up to 30% on your heating cost with new Window Nation windows. Energy costs are rising. In Washington, D.C., energy costs are up 25% as compared to where they were at last year. It's not too late to address your high energy costs by getting yourself some new Window Nation windows and take advantage of Window Nation's off-season prices. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay zero money down, make zero payments, and get 0% financing for 24 months. That's two years, pay nothing. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Are your current windows leaking? Hey, that can cause serious structural damage to your home and can cause mold to grow. Leaky windows can allow mold to grow inside your home completely unnoticed. Get yourself some new Window Nation windows. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want what you heard about from Al Galdi. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus zero money down, zero payments, and 0% financing for 24 months. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mackenzie Gore throws his first pitch in a big league Nationals uniform, and it's a fastball, a called strike to switch inning. Shortstop Tommy Edmond, Nationals won, and the Cardinals batting here in the bottom of the first inning. Well, speaking of pitching, Mackenzie Gore was the national starting pitcher for their exhibition opener on Saturday afternoon. I mean, you almost feel foolish reading box score lines from exhibition games, but this is what we have to go off of as the exhibition season has gotten going. It was a 3-2 victory for the Nationals at the St. Louis Cardinals on Saturday afternoon. Gore pitched for an inning. It was a scoreless inning. He had one strikeout, issued no walks, gave up a hit through 18 pitches, 13 of which are strikes. At the risk of overanalyzing one inning in one spring training game from Mackenzie Gore, obviously a lot of focus, a lot of interest in how he does this coming season. Did anything of note stick out to you about Mackenzie Gore? You know, there are two times a year that you have to overanalyze and make too big a deal out of everything. It's the first week of spring training games and it's the first week of the regular season because that's all you have to work off of. So, of course, we're going to make a bigger deal out of everything as possible. I was really impressed with what I saw from Mackenzie Gore. He's facing the top of the Cardinals A lineup. So, he's facing Edmund, Goldschmidt, Arenado. He's throwing 95, 96. And what impressed me most is afterwards he said, when I told him that was the velocity, he said, yeah, that's pretty good, but I think there's probably still another tick or two up to go over the course of the spring. So this is a guy who has high expectations for himself. Everything I've seen of him so far suggests that he thinks of himself like a frontline, big-time, big-league pitcher. Remember, we didn't get to see him at all last year because he was coming back from the injury. But everything everybody said about him from San Diego before he got hurt was this guy has the ability to be big-time. And again, one inning, but against some very good hitters, it was hard not to be impressed with that. I think the biggest thing with him, with all these young pitchers, is going to be sustaining that, of course, multiple times through the lineup, keeping the velocity there, throwing strikes consistently, and then, of course, staying healthy. But for an opening act, I don't think you could have asked for much more from Mackenzie Gore. Mackenzie Gore was the number three pick in the 2017 draft. He, entering the 2021 season, was the number six prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. So this is a guy who certainly has been well thought of. Is there anything to be read into him being the Nationals exhibition opener starting pitcher? I mean, does that mean anything or was that just, hey, getting Mackenzie Gore some work and we shouldn't take anything other than that from the outing? Yeah, no, I think his schedule that he's been throwing up to this point lined up with that. That's all that it was. What you actually had in a bizarre situation because they played split squad games the next day, Sunday with an off day on Monday, you had three other starters all pitching. You had Josiah Gray in one of the games, Trevor Williams in one of the games, and Cade Cavalli actually out of the bullpen for an inning. I would not read anything into those because they all are kind of lined up on their schedules. They needed their work. 
I would say wait another week or two and we'll start to see where everybody is lined up and you can start doing the five days out kind of thing. But at this point in the spring, they can finagle a lot. And I don't think there was a whole lot to be said for why Gore was the first one out of the gate. It doesn't really matter. But when it comes to the Nationals opening game starter for the regular season, do you think there's a chance that a Mackenzie Gore or a Cade Cavalli or a Josiah Gray will be that guy? Or do you think the veteran Patrick Corbin will get that opening game nod for a second consecutive season? My hunch at this point, again, without really looking at what the schedule dictates, my hunch is that Patrick Corbin would be the front runner for that. And it's not because Davey Martinez or anybody thinks that Patrick Corbin is going to be their best pitcher this year or that he earned it with his performance last year. I think there's going to be a concerted effort on their part to tamper down expectations for the young guys, particularly Gore and Cavalli. They both finished the season on the IL. Cavalli made one big league start. You're even hearing Davey Martinez like not even guarantee that Cavalli's in the opening day rotation, like the idea that maybe he could be sent to AAA. I'd still be surprised that happens, but you've heard him mention that. And Gore, having not even made his Nats debut, do you really want to throw them out there on opening day against the Braves? My hunch would be that their preference there is to have Corbin be the guy, even if that means they lose that game and then come to the younger guys later in that series. I think they don't necessarily want to throw all of that at these kids quite yet. If they had pitched in September and looked good, I think it's a different story. Psychologically, I just think it makes a little difference there. But I think they do believe when the 2023 season is over in a perfect world here, they're going to be looking at Gore and Cavalli as their one and two, one way or the other. It's interesting, Davey, the way he talks, especially it seems with Cavalli, Davey seems to always be trying to like motivate Cade Cavalli. And, you know, like last year, wouldn't say that Cade Cavalli was done for the season. And he openly admitted that he wouldn't say that Cade was done for the season because he wanted Cade to keep preparing as if he was going to pitch again in the season. And now he's throwing out these little hints that, hey, maybe Cade Cavalli won't begin the regular season at the major league level, which would be like, not good and would sound alarm bells, I think. Okay. I mean, Cade Cavalli needs to be on the opening day major league roster. I, I wonder if Davey finds Cade Cavalli to be someone who needs to be motivated or something like that. It's kind of hard to ignore this that Davey keeps doing this, trying to like uh, dangle little carrots in front of Cade Cavalli. Yeah, it could be. And, you know, look, this kid was only drafted in 2020. <laughs> it's not like he's been around that long. He's missed some time. Obviously, the injury last year, he struggled at times at AAA last year and then was very good for a while. They know how good he can be, but he's not a finished product yet. And unlike Gore, who had like a nine-start stretch in the big leagues last year with a 1-5 ERA, Cavalli doesn't have that yet. So I could see how in their mind there's an argument that maybe you convince yourself, you know what, could still use a little more fine-tuning just to make sure. We know he's on a, probably an innings count this year, so let's control his innings for a month or so at AAA. Again, I don't think that's going to happen I think if Kate is healthy, making all his starts and looks fine, and assuming that none of the other candidates, and there aren't a whole lot of real quality candidates for another fifth starter, unless somebody really steps up, I think you're going to get to the end of the spring and say, yes, Cavalli is part of the opening day rotation. But there may be a little bit of motivational tactic there and not wanting him to get too comfortable and just assuming that everything's good. Yeah, it's funny with the Nats because obviously there are many questions about many things, but it actually feels like the opening game roster, I don't want to say is like easy to predict, but I don't know how much actual competition for spots we have. And certainly you think about the rotation, 
That actually seems kind of set, doesn't it? With Corbin, Gore, Cavalli, Gray, and Trevor Williams, right? Like, is there really much competition for the five spots in the opening day rotation? Not if everyone's healthy. The other four besides Cavalli are, are locks, provided they're healthy. And Cavalli, like we just explained, you know, you would think he's a part of it. The others who could be in the mix in theory, Willie Peralta, a veteran they brought in on a minor league deal. He actually did not look good in his debut. It was out of the bullpen. Chad Cool, we haven't seen yet. He's another minor league deal, but a guy with big league experience. I don't think they're looking at Paolo Espino, Corey Abbott. Those are sort of the fallbacks if everything else doesn't work out. So yeah, I think they believe that those five are for the most part set. I think the lineup is probably in stone, maybe not the order, but who the nine guys are. And I think probably at least four spots in the bullpen, if not five, are close to locked up. So there are not a lot of spots up for grabs this spring. I think you're talking about a few bullpen spots and one or two bench spots. And that's really it. And that's surprising on a team coming off a 107 loss season. Wouldn't necessarily think that. But either because of young guys who they're committed to or a few veterans they went out and got this winter to fill specific holes, there's not a whole lot that's up for grabs right now. No. I mean, look, there aren't many options either, which is part of the issue. But yeah, it is kind of funny that it's kind of pretty easy to predict, certainly that opening game rotation. Now, you mentioned the lineup. So again, you know, we're trying to read a lot from a little here, but exhibition opener, CJ Abrams batted in the leadoff spot, Luis Garcia in the two spot, Joey Manessis in the three spot. And then in the uh, 6-3 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon, as part of those uh, two split squad games, you had Abrams in the one spot, Garcia in the two spot, Manessis in the three spot. Do you think that that will be the top three for you know, Davey Martinez's every game lineup, give or take, over the course of this season. I mean, I like that. I think that that makes sense. Abrams, Garcia, Manessis, you know, you can sort of quibble with the order if you want, but those would seem to be three guys uh, on whom you would like uh, to rely this coming season. I think later in the season, we could see that. I don't expect that to be the case out of the shoot. And Davey kind of tamped down that as well, saying that he doesn't want to put, especially in Abrams' case, he doesn't want to put too much on his plate right here from the get-go. They know how important he's going to be. They know what they think he can be as a hitter, but they don't want to put more thoughts in his head and say, hey, you're our opening day leadoff hitter. You have got to go out there and draw your walks and get on base and cause havoc and steal bases and all that. I think what he said was he probably intends to hit those guys like seven and eight in front of Victor Robles, at least at the outset, and go Lane Thomas to lead off to start the year. Now, if they really look good in the spring, that could change it. And I do think once they start hitting, assuming they do as the season goes on, you're going to see that change. But kind of like Cavalli, there seems to be a little bit of like a, hey, you're a big deal. You're our future, but we're going to be careful and not throw too much and put too much on your plate right from the get-go. I get it. I mean, you know, and Lane Thomas has done okay as a leadoff guy over his two seasons with the Nats. So I don't think that's like the worst idea in the world. I guess it's just, you know, we know what the deal is. We know the state of the team. We know the reality of the roster. I mean, even Mike Rizzo now is speaking very openly about the way things are. And even Mike Rizzo, by the way, is contributing to the hype for these prospects. Boy, when he talked with you guys a couple of Fridays ago, Mike was not shy about hyping up this farm system. I just think you've got yourself just a, like a cluster of of high-end, physically gifted, mentally strong, and 
terrific work ethics. And when you put that stuff in a group setting and you get that competition gene going with all these big time athletic prospects, I think you see something special happen. I think some of that, some of that is, you know, he's aware of all the criticism of the state of the farm system. And so he's trying to make it sound like things are better and maybe they are, we'll see. But, you know, if you sort of acknowledge the reality I think it's okay to do something like put a C.J. Abrams in the leadoff spot and just set it and forget it and see what happens. And, you know, I feel like every spring you and I have this conversation about, hey, just put him in that spot and just leave him there and see what happens. And it never ends up being that way, right? And inevitably, like it doesn't happen for some reason. But if ever there is a time to take someone who hasn't yet truly proven himself at the major league level and do something like put him in the one spot and just let him go – Boy, this would seem to be that time. C.J. Abrams, a very well-regarded prospect, a guy who is viewed as a potential five-tool star, just put him in the leadoff spot and just kind of see where that goes, you know? Because if you believe in the player, then you should be willing to go through some struggles because those struggles could end up paying off for you. And maybe sooner rather than later. I mean, maybe by, you know, June, July, August, this guy is tearing it up. And you're like, wow, how did we ever think of not having him in that number one spot? You know, given Davies' history, I think what you're saying is probably true, that we're not going to see Abrams in that leadoff spot from the get-go. But again, if ever there's a time to do something like that, this is that time. Just as long as Cesar Hernandez doesn't lead the team in leadoff appearances again this season, right? Well, but there's a perfect example, right? Like last season, this like inexplicable commitment to Cesar Hernandez. And you're like, what was the point of that? And here we are a year later, right? And Cesar Hernandez is long gone. And it's like, what was the point of all that, of all those plate appearances for Cesar Hernandez last season? Like, you know, I think that that's one of the things that has really driven Nats fans crazy is like, you've been losing with these guys who are like one and done players for you. And they end up being, you know... Uh, like ghosts, you know, like their answers to trivia questions 15 years from now, you know, Cesar Hernandez. Oh, yeah, I remember him. But it's like, what was the point of all that? He had so many at-bats for the Nats last season, and he did so little with those at-bats. And he so often batted so high up in the order last season. It's like, why did we engage in that? So if nothing else this season, I'd like to see the Nats just say, hey, put these young guys out there, put them in prominent spots in the lineup, and just see where it takes you. And if things don't go well, that's okay. At least you're getting a better sense on what you have and what you maybe don't have. So the fear would just always be that if you do say put CJ Abrams as your leadoff hitter and he starts the year, you know, hitting 127 with only two walks at the end of April. And I say, well, we're going to have to bump him down. Does that somehow destroy his confidence or somehow make him, you know, have any kind of long lasting ramifications? I don't know if that happens or not. I would love to see him in a prominent role as well. Same with Garcia. I do agree that when you fully acknowledge the situation that you're in, embrace it, put the kids out there, let them see what they can do with it and let them understand that, hey, even if you struggle, your job isn't in jeopardy. Like We're going to weather the growing pains there and let this develop over time. I get that philosophy. I would not be opposed to that at all. I'm just telling you the suggestions that Davey makes makes me think that at least to start the year, that's not going to be the case. But I will say this, Abrams can play his way into that if he does like he did in the exhibition opener, which was a leadoff single in the first inning, steal second, a double later in the game. And and this was the key one. He had a 3-2 count in his second at bat, gets a pitch that's up at the letters, takes it, starts to trot down to first base, assuming it's ball four. It's actually called strike three. When you go back and look at the plot, because they had the stat cast for that game, it was clearly a ball and it was high. 
Davey and everybody in the dugout said, hey, good at bat, like that's what we want from you. Be selective. If you're going to hit at the top of the lineup, you have to be able to take your walks. Hopefully, he didn't take the result of that as a call third strike and let that get to him and say, well, I guess I do need to swing more. What they want from him is swinging less. Make sure you're swinging at the right pitches. So for one game, at least, that was a good sign of a guy who looked like a leadoff hitter the way he approached those at bats. Yeah. And the way that I always kind of view the thing of you don't want to ruin a guy's confidence. So if Abram struggles, you have to demote him in the lineup. I think if that's going to ruin a guy, then he's not the guy to begin with. If he's going to let that really mess with him that much, then he probably was not going to become the player who you want him to become. And I would think that a guy like C.J. Abrams could handle something like that. But yeah, I mean, ideally, you don't want to put him in the one spot. He's awful. And then you have no choice but to put him in like the eight spot. Like that would not be the way that you want things to go. But again, you know, you can have a lengthy leash with someone like an Abrams in a season like this one. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Menezes' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. So Mark Lerner was at National Spring Training within the last week or so, and Mark Lerner on Sunday put out, I guess, a letter to fans along those lines. Uh, The uh, sort of headline of the letter was from the desk of Mark D. Lerner, and uh, it had to do with the Nationals on Sunday having their first home game of the spring training season, and uh, Mark talked up you know, the Nationals prospects and expressed optimism. And, you know, that was very nice to read. And he thanked people for their condolences off the death of his father, Ted Lerner, within the last few weeks. But, you know, it has been a long time since Mark Lerner has actually spoken to you guys. And I'm sure it was kind of, uh, you know, a difficult circumstance. He shows up at Nat's camp. What are you going to start bombarding him with questions about the rebuild off the passing of his father? Are there any plans? Is there any expectation for Mark Lerner to speak to reporters anytime soon? Do you know? Well, I would love for that to take place, of course. Uh, I've not heard any specific plans for it. Let's be clear about this. There have not been very many times over the course of the ownership in which he has made himself available like that in like a scrum session 
or even in a press conference where he was the focus of it. And he's fielding questions about all manner of topics related to the organization. Usually it's been a more controlled environment, either like a prearranged interview with a TV reporter or something like that, or the occasional off the cuff, hey, happened to grab you on the field to ask you one or two questions about a specific topic. So it's not typically his MO to hold like a state of the organization kind of thing. So my guess would be, you know, as much as I would love for that to happen, I have my doubts in part because he knows and and the people in charge of these things know that there are some pretty big matzo balls hanging out there that will have to be asked of him. And I'm not sure that he knows what the right public answer for those things is. Now, you can say, yeah, hey, you're the owner of a team. You should be able to give a good, coherent answer that assures the fan base of where this is going, whether it's the sale, whether it's the TV deal, whether it's payroll, whatever. But that's never really been his thing to do that. And and this, I think, is where they miss someone like Stan Kasten when he was here as the team president. He was the face, the voice for ownership, for better or worse. Since Kasten left, and it's been more than a decade now, it really ends up falling on Mike Rizzo a lot. And these are not topics that Rizzo is really the correct person. He ends up having to speak for ownership about matters that you know are not his to decide. So when Mark did arrive the first day, he was right there on the field, you know, in front of everyone. Everybody come up to say hello. I said hello to him, offered my condolences, chatted for about two minutes with him just about how things were going. You know, we gave a couple of thoughts of, you know, what he thinks about the team, you know, none of it to be, you know, quoted. You know, we didn't feel like that first day we are, like you said, gonna bombard him, you know, when at that point he's less than two weeks removed from the death of his father. It is notable how many other owners you see around spring training kind of holding court and answering some tough questions. And you would like for that, I would love for that to be the case here. I'm just not holding my breath because of the history there. My guess would be that while he is around and and very personable, it's never been his MO to do that kind of thing, even in the good times, let alone now where there are so many major questions hovering over the franchise. I think it's tricky because I think most people, and I would count myself among those people, you want ownership to kind of stay out of the way and let the baseball people run the baseball things and talk about the baseball things. So if an owner doesn't speak publicly often, I think that that's just fine. At the same time, you don't want your owner to become like a recluse and never speak publicly. And it does stand out that the learner ownership group like basically never talks anymore. Like I thought after the trading away of Juan Soto last summer, that was a time that called for something from ownership. And, you know, I didn't think that Mark Lerner had to get up at a podium and take questions for 45 minutes. But, geez, you could have put out a statement saying, we understand this is a tough day. Here's why we're doing this. We have great faith in Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez and, you know, onward and upward. And instead, you got nothing. And, you know, it's, it's funny to me to hear you say that often Mike Rizzo was left to handle questions that are better suited for ownership because often Davey Martinez has had to handle questions that are better suited for Mike Rizzo. And there's sort of this passing of the buck that goes down the Nationals organizational chain, I've noticed in recent years. Because as we've talked about, Rizzo hasn't spoken as often as he had in years past to the media. Although, you know, to Mike's credit, he did speak to you guys at length a few Fridays ago. So, you know, I don't think that Mark Lerner has to take questions on the regular 
But, you know, not taking questions on the regular doesn't mean never taking questions. And it was uh, now two Sundays ago that John Angelos, the Orioles owner, took questions for 30 plus minutes at Orioles spring training. And it's not like John Angelos speaks publicly often, but, you know, if he can do that, I would think that Mark Lerner can do that. And John Angelos answered questions about everything. He answered questions about his intra-family feud. He answered questions about whether the Angelos family has plans to sell the Orioles. And by the way, John said basically no, which is not good news for the Nationals in terms of the Masson dispute and the Nationals potentially being sold. Although, you know, to what extent John was being truthful, I think it's hard to say, but that's another uh, topic of conversation. But yeah, there's no like ideal schedule for a baseball owner to talk. But I know it's more often than never. And we're really starting to creep into that realm of never with the learners. And I don't think that that's a good thing. And again, after something like trading away Soto, if you want to demonstrate some leadership, you can even just put out a statement, but say something. I think people wanted to hear something. Reassuring words were needed when that trade happened. And if you're a Nats fan, you didn't get many of them. Well, I'll even take you farther back. You know, they did publicly acknowledge in April that they were starting the process of exploring a sale of the team. And there was one or two quotes, kind of prefabricated things to you know, let the people know, but there's been nothing on that subject since. And I understand why these aren't necessarily things you want to openly talk about, but that's been hovering over everything ever since. And if that situation has changed at all, which it feels like at least the timeline for what they thought it was going to be has changed. There is sort of an obligation, I think, to, in some form or another, give everyone just an update on where do things stand? Do you expect to own the team for the rest of the year? Are you maybe no longer looking to sell the team the same way that you were? How are you planning to proceed with this? What do you feel about the state of the rebuild at this point? I get that these are tough questions, that there aren't always going to be the answers that they want to give that make them look in the best possible light. But- They also know what the questions are going to be. I don't think we're going to surprise them with anything. There is a way to talk about these beforehand and come up with how you want to answer them if you're going to take questions or at the very least, like you said, put out some kind of statement or some kind of controlled situation where you can send out the message that you want to send. It's one thing to send out a message that is controlled. It's another to send out no message. And there's really been no message publicly from ownership after a year that has seen so much change. No, there hasn't. And to the point about the sale, I believe all we've ever gotten are some quotes to the Washington Post. Like there's never been a formal statement from the organization that a sale is being considered. Even Dan Snyder, who is as recluse as recluse gets, as uh, owners go certainly in the Washington DC area, even he his team, the commanders, put out a statement regarding their sale. You know, the team put out a statement on November 2nd confirming a report from Forbes earlier that day that the team is considering potential transactions. The Nationals have never actually formally acknowledged that a sale is being considered. Now, we know that a sale is being considered, but like, geez, you couldn't even put out something to say, here's what we're thinking, here's what we're doing. Like, there's been nothing along those lines. And You know, it's not the end of the world, but I think it is kind of disappointing. Fans are pretty understanding, I think, for the most part, when a lot of these things are happening. And the ones who pay attention, all of you who listen to us all the time, you may not agree with it, but you understand what they're trying to do right now. But I think all that fans really deep down want, and I'm not speaking about this as a reporter. Obviously, as a reporter, you want as much as you can get. But 
it's really as a conduit to then inform fans of what's going on. And I think what fans just really want is some acknowledgement, some guidance about what their larger plan is here. Because is it the same thing that it was nine months ago or has that changed at all? Are they all in on the rebuild? Are they saying, we're not going to spend any money until all these prospects are ready to come up and play? Or, hey, no, if this and this and this goes well, we feel like we might be in a better position to start doing that again. What are your thoughts on the two people in charge of your organization who are on expiring contracts this year? There's just, there's so much there that I think fans, they just want something, some acknowledgement that ownership can give them a message of, here's what we're trying to do. We're not there yet. It may take a while till we get there, but here's at least an outline of what we're trying to do. Yeah. You don't have to tweet like Steve Cohen. You don't have to conduct post-game press conferences like Jerry Jones, but just the occasional, hey, hello, here's what's going on. I think that could go a long way. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you'd like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, we'd love to have you. Email Tim Shovers. Uh, again, that address is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at NatsChatPodcast, and you can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the great Nats Chat podcast theme song. We'll be back with you with another installment of the Nats Chat podcast for this coming Monday. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Long set the pitch. Swing and a ground ball slowly hit to the second baseman. Grissom has it. Throws it away into left field. Manessis will score. Voigt is up and going to third. And in its second is Cesar Hernandez. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.